can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90, Psalm 9-0, what we just sang, actually. Taking a short break from 1 Samuel, as we're almost done 1 Samuel, but we have been um, on our communion Sundays doing a, a psalm, a meditation on a psalm. It's also just a week for us to take a collective breath, deep breath from all of our serving and all the Sunday school teaching and the children's church teaching. And we can just give them a break. And so we don't have children's church this morning, which means, in theory, that's a shorter sermon. So I will do my best to make this a shorter sermon, more of a meditation, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper, the table. Um, so Psalm 90 is where we're going to be this morning, looking at a prayer of Moses, one of the f- few that aren't David's psalms, but it's listed as a, a prayer of Moses. The man of God is the heading. So if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning needy, needing your mercy, needing to hear your word. So, Father, open our ears, open our hearts to receive it with humility. May we be placed under the word as we study it and hear it. Father, change us into obedient, satisfied followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen. For me, high school was sort of a wilderness journey. Uh, I was a freshman going into a brand new school, leaving public school, going to a private school, didn't know anybody as a freshman. And I went early 
that summer to school because uh, we were training for soccer. So I was going to be on the soccer team. And you know, going to a new school at the age of 14 is scary. You just don't know anybody. You don't know if you're going to make good friends. It's, it's fearful. And in that soccer camp, the week or so before school started, I met a, a, a boy, a friend of mine, a peer, my age, on the soccer team. And we joked around. We had fun. His name was Jesse Kay. And um, especially in times of fear, when you're going to a new school, the, the people you meet and the friends you make that first week or second week, you latch onto them. It's exciting. You want to, uh, because you don't know how many friends you're going to make. It's scary. So after that first week, though, he didn't show up to soccer camp the next week. He didn't show up to school, actually, the rest of that year. Reason being, what I heard is that he, he had a soreness in the back of his throat, a soreness like kind of in the back of his tongue. And he didn't know what it is. He had to go to the hospital, and it turned into leukemia. And, of course, he wasn't back the rest of that school year, and I lost touch with him. And as I was sort of wandering in my own sin and rebellion throughout high school, it was a reminder as I'm looking back of God's signs and that his presence was with me, that he was teaching me and he was showing me things even back then. Even as I was seeing suffering in my life and in my friends' lives. I'm going to go back to Jesse's story um, at, the, at the end of the sermon. But it was, it was eye-opening. It reminded me at that young age that life is short. Right? Even as a teenager, we're not promised a single day more. And that is one of the truths we're going to learn in this psalm, is that our life is short. Our life is short. But the overall point of this psalm is this, that because the gospel is true, because the gospel of God's mercy and grace in Christ is true, we don't have to be afraid to die or live. There's a lot of fear that we experience in life. And a lot of that's because we're thinking about death. But because the gospel and the goodness of God is true, we don't have to be afraid to die or live. So there's three main truths I want to pull from this this psalm. The first is that our life is short. The second is that God's wrath is coming. And third, God's love is here. Right now, his love is here. Let's begin with the first idea that our life is short. And look at verses 1 through 6 as we, as we unpack this. Moses opens this prayer with Adonai, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The statement of faith and, and trust. And then in, in verse 2, I'll come back to it, but talking about how God is different than us. He's eternal. He was, he was here before the creation existed. And in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. We are dust, and we will return to dust. We are not like God. A lot of these verses talk about the shortness of our lives. It's interesting. I think in our culture today, we've removed death as much as we possibly can from our lives. The idea, the concept, uh, the awareness of death. And that's for a few reasons. Perhaps the greatest is, is our modern medicine. And technology, we've been able to prolong our lives. We have more comfortable lives. We have more answers to our maladies and our illnesses. If you lived 100, 200 years ago, you would have been surrounded by death. You wouldn't have lived as long. You would have seen more children die. 
you would have seen people die more in their 40s and 50s. But modern medicine has removed us from death. Also, just our modern sensibilities. One example of that is how many new churches do you see built with cemeteries around it? Right? Not many. Right? We don't have plans here at Hope to build a cemetery around our building. One of the things I enjoyed when we were doing our Good Friday services over at St. Luke's in the years past is we'd have our Good Friday service and the sun would be going down. You would you'd be walking out as you see, look around you, a cemetery. You see these tombstones. You see the presence of death. I don't know if you knew this, but people are actually buried under St. Luke's. So it's, it's, it's a different idea, but the church has always had that idea that we ought to surround ourselves with the saints, those who've been, been before us. Another modern, modernism or a way of speaking is we often say, this person so-and-so passed away instead of died. And I say it. I say it all the time, passed away. And it really didn't show up in our language until the 1500s. One writer, Brian Stanley, says, Uh, why passed away fails to capture the reality of death. He says, the word death is a strong and solid word. It does not blush or flinch, calling life's terminus by its first name without apology. But most people euphemize death with the softer phrase passed away. To pass away suggests a gentle and painless transition from one state to another, like chilled water passing imperceptibly into ice. Thereby, words conceal from thoughts the horrors of violent accidents and the racking of agonies of terminal illness, as if everyone, instead of only a lucky few, died peacefully in their sleep. And how about the word away? Pass away. It's a nebulous word that does not suggest a termination, but neither specifies a destination. It's kind of a leaving off, a gesture of open-endedness, an ellipsis at the end of a sentence, dot, dot, dot. It is accordingly the perfect word for the skeptical yet sentimental modern mind, which cannot accept annihilation nor easily believe in immortality. Passed away allows vague hope without dogma. As if to say, he's gone somewhere else, please don't ask for details. But you see, friends... When we're shaped by the truth of the gospel, we'll be honest about death. When we understand the truth and the power of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can be honest about death. There's something honest about an open casket, a, a body on display, reminding us that, yes, their body, they, they are not there anymore. You see that more in the South than you see anywhere else, still open caskets. It's a reminder that their soul has departed and is with their Savior. But in this psalm, God tells us to meditate on our mortality. Verse 3, again, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. To say that we are from dust and that we're going to return to dust, isn't that a reminder of our weakness, that we're beset with weakness? We're not God. We have feet of clay. We can be washed off the surface of the earth in an instant. Death can come on suddenly. I'm always reminded of this video I saw of the tsunami in Indonesia back in 2004 or 8. 
And there was a ma- so the water gets and a tsunami gets sucked way out into the ocean uh, before it comes back in huge waves. And so people ran out into the this huge low tide. And the people that did that got washed away. And there's this video captured of people from a hotel looking down, and this man is standing there, and this like 30 foot wall of water takes him out, and I'm sure he died instantly. We are from dust, and we return to dust. We're only here for a short time. If you go from verse 5 following, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. He's talking about humans. He's talking about you and me. Like grass that's renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and then it's gone in the evening. Apparently in in that landscape, in the desert especially, you have grass that springs up even in the morning, and then by the afternoon and evening, because of the scorching heat, it dies. When we bought our house back in 2017, there was this beautiful uh, redbud tree, and it was in bloom. Beautiful, bright pink. And that, i got to say, that was one of the selling points that we bought the house, but what we didn't know is that that only lasts for like two weeks. Right? And those redbuds fall, and then the tree just looks like a regular tree. See, we're like those redbuds. We're here, and then we're gone. One commentator says, each human being is but a drop in the giant stream of time. We're just a drop. Even if you live a hundred years, you're just a drop. And so what are we called to do? Look down at verse 12. What is he telling us to do? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What does that mean to teach us to number our days? We can't literally number our days, can we? He's not speaking literally. We can't say, I've got six years left. I've got three months left. What he's saying is we can know our days are numbered. Right? You can't know how many days you have left, but you can know your days are numbered. You know you're not, you don't have an infinite amount of them here. And Even deeper than that, God knows those numbers. He knows exactly how many days you have left. Why? Because he he gave them to you. He predestined them. He wrote them down. In Psalm 139, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. God knows our days. He knows our story. How does he know our story? Because he wrote it. It's already been written. It's already set in stone. So we're told to meditate on immortality and also to meditate on the idea that we are not God. That's one thing we often lose sight of. We are not God. We are limited. Verse 2, go back to verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you'd form the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is other. He is not a part of creation. We are his creation. God's otherness is important. Why? Why is this creature, uh, creation, and and creator-creation distinction, why is that important? The uh, elders and deacons have been going through this book together called Lead by Paul Tripp. And in it, he's got this great statement about why it's so important to understand 
that you've been created. He says, if I have been created by someone, then that someone had a purpose in mind for making me. So understanding that purpose is vital to my proper functioning. You will not function properly as a human being if you don't know that you were made with a purpose by a creator. That your, that your gender is not an accident, nor is it something you can decide. Right? It's something that's been given to you. It's how you properly function as a human being because you have a creator. And not, not just that, he has rights over you, or over you and over us. Our creator has rights over us. We're, we're made to function a certain way and to obey him and to follow him. There's this beautiful uh, prayer by Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century theologian. He says, Lord, because you've made me, I owe you the whole of my love. Because you've redeemed me, I owe you the whole of myself. Because you've promised me so much, I owe you my whole being. Draw me to you, O Lord, in the fullness of your love. I am wholly yours by creation. Make me all yours too in love. You see the connection he's making in that prayer. We've been created, therefore we owe God everything. And that's where we see our failure, isn't it? We're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. We're supposed to reflect his glory, but instead we fall short. And so as we come to the second truth, Let me first say that without the gospel, death is scary. Without the gospel, death is scary. Death is something to be feared because God's wrath is coming. That's the second main point of this this psalm. God's wrath is coming. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. You know, the very fact that we don't live forever, the very fact that we die testifies to the truth that God's wrath is coming, doesn't it? It's, a, it's an effect of the fall that we die. Look at verse 10 and 11. He connects our death and his anger. Look, they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? You see, friends, death wasn't meant to be. Death was not a part of the original creation. It's it's an effect of, of the sin that came into the world. It wasn't meant to be. When we see death, part of the reason we should hate it and and mourn it is because it is not God's intention that we are to die. It's ugly. It's hard, it's brutal, and it elicits tears and hurt. And so so just the very fact that we die shows there is still God's wrath in this world. It's an effect of of our sin. But how do we understand the anger of God? Look at verses 7, 9, and 11. We see anger there mentioned three times. For we are brought to an end by your anger... Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger? God is angry at sin. But you know, anger itself 
in and of itself, anger is not bad. It's not evil. In fact, it's a legitimate emotion that flows from love and justice. Right? When you see your wife, your husband, your children, their lives threatened, doesn't that make you angry? That's a good response. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Anger flows from love. But God's anger isn't like our anger. I think sometimes we, we don't like the word anger because we, we know so much of its fallenness in ourselves and others. God's anger isn't like our anger. You say we're capricious in our anger. Our anger is often out of proportion to the, to the injustice. But God is a God of perfect justice. His anger is always righteous. And why is he angry? Because the most unjust action is to rebel against a perfect creator. That's why he's angry. Because we've said, I don't want you, God. I don't want to live under your rule. And so one commentator says, humans, even redeemed humans, are sinful and then deserve the full impact of God's anger. Sin deserves the full impact of God's anger. And ever since the fall, before we're redeemed in Christ, we can do nothing but sin. And because in our heart of hearts we have nothing but sin, God looks upon us and sees nothing but sin. He sees clearly into our hearts. He sees clearly into our minds and our thoughts. Look again at verse 8. For you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows what you say, God knows what you do, God knows what you think. He knows what I do, he knows what I think, and I say. God has the transcript of your life, friends. And all of us are guilty. And so because of this, God's wrath is always there. We can't stand before God's wrath will be extinguished, and we're guilty. You know, in this, it's hard for us as Americans to really get our minds around that because we've lived in so much peace and prosperity um, where we don't, we don't often live with the fear of tragedies or overturning governments. And we, we have a sense of stability, at least now. And so that is the dam of God's grace holding back his wrath. So every day that we live with that stability, every day that he, his wrath tarries, it's like a dam holding back a river of his wrath. But he's holding it back. Why? Because our only hope lies in his favor. If we can't hope in his wrath, if we can't stand before him because he's angry, because we're sinners, our only hope is in his favor. Our only hope is on, is on the off chance that God is merciful. And that is, that is what Moses appeals to in the end. 
Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We're under his wrath, so we must appeal to his mercy. You know the greatest display of God's wrath in the Bible? The greatest display of God's wrath wasn't the flood. It wasn't the plagues on Egypt and crossing of the Red Sea and drowning all the Egyptians. It wasn't God's people entering the promised land and taking out all the nations. The greatest display of God's wrath is shown in God's greatest act of love. The greatest display of God's wrath is the cross. That is where the most amount of his anger was poured out in one place and one time was on his son. Which is also his greatest act of love. Because it's it's the place of our salvation. Where Jesus took on our sin and was punished for it. That is the only means. That's the only basis that we can come to God. Because if you trust in Jesus, there is no more wrath left for you. So we turn from God's wrath is coming to God's love is here. Verse 13 and following, we see I already said in verse 13, Moses is is now coming to God on the basis of mercy. Have pity on your servants. Return, relent, God, Moses says. Have compassion on us, God. We're sinners, and we only can see your wrath. You know, there's the there's scene of, of Moses when he goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, and as he's on his way down, God tells him that Israel's been worshiping a golden calf. Right? They didn't take them just a few days before they turned to idolatry. And God says, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. They're gone. You're now. I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses. And what does Moses say? He says this in Exodus 32, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants. And what did God do? He, he relented from the disaster he had spoken on bringing on his people. See, see, Moses appealed to his mercy. Stick with this people. Show us your grace. Show us your mercy. Friends, that is the only way we can relate to God now because of our sin. We cannot come to him on the basis of our, of our works. If it's, on our, if it's based upon our works, we have only wrath. It has to be based on his mercy. It has to be based on his compassion. And that is the only way we can relate to him. And, and if we do that, we have a God who's going to give us the blessings we read about in verse 13 and following. That if God's love is here, we have a home. Let's go all the way back to verse 1. What is it that he calls God? Lord, you, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God's our home. It's where we can dwell with him. You think about your own home, how the comforts of home, the place where you can go and relax and be loved. That is what God is saying he is for us. And how does a holy God dwell with an unholy people only on the basis of sacrifice, of death? In the Old Testament, it was, it was animal sacrifice, and it pointed to Jesus' final sacrifice for our sins. But that is how 
we dwell with God. If we come to God on the basis of his love, then we enjoy satisfaction and delight. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen evil. See, even if, you've, if you're not a Christian today, if you've lived most of your life or all of your life without submitting to God, without coming to him and experiencing his love in Christ, the love that you get to experience, the delight you will receive will more than make up for the years that you rejected him, the years that you spent pushing him away. The satisfaction you will get is beyond comparison. And so joy needs to be that necessary part of our faith and trust in God. Do you give that joy off to other people? Do you show that joy? And then as as Moses ends this prayer, he points us to the favor of the Lord. Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. When we live in the love of God through Christ, We have his favor. We have his favor and our work is established. It's an interesting uh, repetition at the end of this prayer, at the end of this psalm, establish the work of our hands, establish the work of our hands. The point being, life under the sun may be vain. The person under God's judgment can accomplish no ultimate good, but the godly and wise pray that the Lord will accept their work and establish it as having value. One commentator says the special force of this reiteration of, uh, if you look back at establish, look at verse 17, establish, establish, must be felt. If you you see that, that repetition, you must feel that as a reversal of the imagery of the withering grass, the size, the things burnt up by God's wrath, the human flooded or engulfed by sleep. Everything in life is not lasting. But a life lived for God is established. It is firm. That's why you see that repetition. Establish the work of our hands. Establish it. There is there's a permanency to a life lived for God. It's lasting. You know, we're going to die. Life is temporary. But our work in lives have lasting meaning because it's upheld, it's established, and it's firmed by God. I told you I was going to go back to my, my friend Jesse from high school. Uh, he died three years after that when he got sick. Um, but before he died, when he was 17, he came back to our, it was an Episcopal school, he came back to our chapel and gave his testimony. And so there he was, you know, without any hair. And he talked about his testimony. He talked about how he trusts in Jesus. He talked about that we all needed to trust in Jesus, that we need to repent, that we need to follow Christ. He was confident. He lived boldly for Christ because why? His days were numbered. He knew his days were numbered. 
and he wasn't afraid to die. That was very impactful for me, being that 17-year-old, just a couple years away from the Lord really drawing me back to himself. And on, on Jesse's tombstone, he has this, this verse from 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8. I know you, you, you know it well. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. Pray with me. Father, you are a good Father. We thank you for calling us to this place, for creating a new people, a people across all lines of society. All the divisions of this world are eliminated at your cross. And we come before you as your people, united in the blood of our Savior. So we thank you for him. Would you send us out from this place, joyful, hopeful, knowing that you're returning soon. So come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.